Welcome to the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Nutera Ventures, your guide to healthcare investing. Join us as we explore interviews with pioneering entrepreneurs, investors, and innovative leaders, helping you spark innovation in the world of venture capital investing. Awesome. Jenny Hopkins, really a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Super excited to have you on, just given how critical you are to the development of the Natera Ventures healthcare strategy. You are obviously a critical element of our ecosystem. You are the managing partner of Crescendo Capital Partners, where you held the role as the CEO of one of the companies we acquired, American Medical Sales and Repair. And I shouldn't say we acquired, this was a care acquisition, but ultimately your portfolio company is now part of the healthcare strategy of Natera broadly. So Pleasure to have you on. How are you doing today? Hey, glad to be here, Thomas. Looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Yes. First question sort of kick us off is you obviously you've been doing investing on the private equity side, it appears for some time and you're an operator. Tell us a little bit about what got you into the healthcare space in general. So healthcare in general, probably like many other in the healthcare space, it was there's so many opportunities. If you look at what's the most screwed up, mixed up market out there. If it's not healthcare, I don't know what it is. So it was opportunities and there are just so many little niches. We came across this little business that was sort of at the nexus of aging and people taking control of their own medical health and the internet really becoming a marketing tool to reach the populations. And we said, you know, I think this is going to be something we can run with. And we were right. So it was looking for the opportunity, knowing that healthcare had just lots of little niches that were available. Very cool. Tell us a little bit more about your background. I gave a a very general overview, but your background and your story, I think would be really useful for our listeners. Yes. So I grew up in high tech. I actually started with Hewlett Packard in the days when we were first bringing computers. I don't want to sound old, but (laughs) but I am a little bit, but computers to the desktop and had a wonderful 20 plus year career with HP where I designed some of those early computers, manufacture them. And then I had the opportunity to help take HP spinoff Agilent Technologies public where I got to ride the cell phone boom. So I actually had two really fun rises of technologies kind of across my HP career. I found myself with two growing daughters traveling 200 or two daughters in high school, traveling 200,000 miles a year and realized it was time to maybe take a reassessment. So I took a pause and I started, we started, my husband was part of it with me, investing in our own businesses and found that to be an interesting and challenging alternative to corporate America. So that brought me to a to Crescendo, where we had a, a group of investments, most recently this American Medical that Care and Natera purchased. Yeah, you know, HP, very interesting story, right? Founded in a garage, right? Got into the computing boom very, very early on. That's a really interesting story. Could you tell us a little bit about, so it sounds like you were part of the Agilent ecosystem. That was a spin out of HP. Tell us a little bit about your time at HP and a little bit about that spin out process. That seems uh, pretty interesting. Yep. It was, you know, so this is late 90s, right in the middle of the dot-com kind of boom. HP was transitioning from Bill and Dave and their successor, a guy named CEO Lou Platt to Carly Fiorina. So lots of challenges. And in the market in those days, it was all about spinning off to create more shareholder value and then acquisition. So HP spun off their test and measurement 
which was kind of the sleepy portion of the business. Little did they know it was going to be the nexus of the cell phone revolution, but spun that off. HP focused on computer and processing and enterprise and all the stuff that HP focused on, which has done well, right? It has continued to evolve. Agilent was a really fun spinoff at the time, though, because at the core of Agilent's technologies was RF and microwave equipment, which is fundamental to cell phones. So part of our journey was really seeing that cell phone world grow. I can admit that I was in a conference room with Nokia and cold night in Finland when they told us they were going to put phones in the cameras and everybody in there thought it was the stupidest idea they had heard of. And so the world changes fast. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. I mean, you know, spinning companies out of a large company, that seems very challenging. Obviously, that's a little bit of a part of our Natero Ventures mandate. We invest in companies, obviously through my mandate, but then we're also spinning companies out. So we're building infrastructure internally and trying to commercialize it. What can you tell our listeners is kind of the, what's the secret sauce to spinning out a company successfully? What needs to be in place and how does one execute it? Gosh, so Agilent from HP spinoff was, you know, a couple billion dollar spinoff. So it was a much bigger one than we are wrestling with. But I do think in general... On the oh, so this was, sorry, this was a developed business unit. Yes, 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 yes. We were, we were a $3 billion spinoff going public. So we went public with it. So it was a big spinoff. But I do think through my career there and watching other small businesses go, I have been part of lots of smaller spinoffs because in big corporations, there's lots of things that don't fit their paradigm and they'd like to see them thrive somewhere else. So we did have many other spinoffs. I think what we're learning in the Terra too is this real proof of concept and how do you get it and how do you get it self-sufficient and what is, we call it escape velocity, right? When is a company, (laughs) the point that it can really make it into orbit, right? Escape velocity using Star Trek terms. Sure. I love Star Trek terms. That resonates for our listeners here. So again, I guess, you know, kind of riffing off your characteristics of a successful spinoff, this kind of portends well into what makes a good investment target. So as you think about, obviously, you're critical to our investment strategy here at Natera Ventures, but it also appears that you have your own investment strategy with Crescendo. Can you tell us a little bit about what sort of qualities or characteristics are you looking for in some of the founders and management teams that you interact with when deciding to invest? Good question. So I think it always starts with the market and the opportunity, right? And how, what unique characteristics the business is bringing to solve that market need. If there are a lot of great ideas, we've all seen them in tech that just don't have a market need. So it does have to start with the market need and the customer and the opportunity. And then I do believe what are the unique characteristics that the product has for meeting those market needs. In this little American medical niche opportunity it was, we were able to get a product called an oxygen concentrator directly to the customers who needed it. And it was better quality, better service, more accessible than what they could get through their local channels of what was then a DME or a durable medical equipment provider. So lots of ways to find it, but there has to be a unique niche and a unique ability to serve that customer need. I think as we look at within the Terra, we're looking at markets. We are definitely looking at markets that we think can grow because we're a big company. We're looking for big markets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as that we have a unique value proposition to bring to bear. Sure. Absolutely. You know, your story at AMSR is pretty interesting. Certainly, 
you know, you saw that from kind of soup to nuts and obviously to the exit to Natera. You obviously also weathered the kind of pandemic. And without stating the obvious here, you're a respiratory therapeutics company. The pandemic was a respiratory disease pandemic. Tell us a little bit about what sort of headwinds and tailwinds did you see during the pandemic and how did you weather the storm? It was a really challenging time for all businesses and smaller businesses like ours in particular. So first of all, although we were a respiratory and we had a respiratory product we could sell, there was no supply, right? The supply was almost immediately evacuated, used up, right? So it was gone. So such that we were having difficulty getting product to sell to customers that really needed it. Additionally, our core customer, our senior citizens or COPD patients that want to travel and with nobody traveling, there was a really a disconnect that we had some products that they didn't want and we didn't have products that they needed. So challenging all around there. Second challenge is as a business, you have to make the decisions of how do you manage and what do you do with people? We made the decision that we wanted to keep our core team. So we used the time to fix our quality system, to rewrite procedures, to reorganize our warehouse. We kept all of our employees employed, most of them working remotely, some were in the warehouse, through almost 12 to 15 months of what was we were not able to meet in person, trying to really maintain our labor base. So it was a challenging time. Interesting. Sounds like you made some lemonade out of the lemons, though, that not many companies made it through that. But you not only weathered the storm, you got to sort of an exit, which every entrepreneur strives for. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose Natera? You know, you had a great company, could have sold to just about anyone, could have sold to another private equity box sponsor, another corporate. What was it about Natera that piqued your interest and how has that been so far? So it has been very good, actually. And I will tell you that we were a good strategic partner for multiple companies, as you said. But I had started talking to CARE several years earlier because I did think we had the best value alignment. And I knew that CARE was a company that was willing to think out of the box a little bit about how they could get better to the customer. Some of the other competitors are a little less innovative or some of the other potential buyers of my company were a little less innovative. And CARE, I knew, was interested in thinking out of the box. I knew they had great energy around taking good care of their customers, which was important to me. So once we started to get into discussions, I knew that CARE would be a good fit for us even before we got too far down the path. But as I, I made a decision, it was those reasons that helped me choose CARE. Very cool. Well, you know, it's a huge sort of blessing for us, kind of metaphorically, of course, but real huge value add to brought someone like yourself into our ecosystem. It's just made it better. And, you know, having had multiple interactions with you here on investment targets and strategy sessions, I can say you are definitely one of the smartest people I've had the pleasure of interacting with. And I mean that very genuinely. And I was kind of reflecting back on reading stories through your background and wondering, you know, Jenny always has a very unique perspective. It's very complimentary to the discussion. And she's a great listener and has high impact advisory in any given situation. And I think part of the reason you have that, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're both an investor and an operator. And you don't find that as often in Silicon Valley. You have lifetime investors, you have lifetime operators, but you're sort of a balance, right? 50-50, you can invest and you can operate. Tell us a little bit about those functional capabilities. How do you balance your investor mindset, your operator mindset when sort of approaching 
building businesses or investing in them? Well, first of all, thank you for the nice compliments. I think you're maybe overselling <laughs> me a little bit. I would also say I am probably a big O operator, little I. From that perspective, within a corporate America career, when you're in a senior executive role, you are doing lots of acquisitions. But I will tell you, acquisitions in a corporation and how you invest mm -hmm. is different than when it's your own money because it's kind of funny money. It just doesn't feel quite the same. And so what I think I've learned in the last 10 years in this kind of second phase of my career is investing like it's your own money really changes your perspective a little bit. So yeah. I put that out there. I do, as we, Natera, look at things, I do try to always make sure I'm looking at it from, if it was my money, would I put money into this? How do I think it works? I do think 20 plus years really managing and leading operations does help you understand operations, whether it's supply chain or manufacturing or development and being able to ascertain if a potential company really has it figured out or doesn't have those figured out because yeah. success is dependent on the operations delivering, right? And that takes yeah. a solid design, a good supply chain and good operations and a good marketing. Don't Let's not sell marketing short at all. Because sure. the health world for sure has lots of business model innovations as well. So I do think my operational background has really helped me be a better investor. Yeah. So I want to sort of riff on your comment when you're investing your own money versus other people's money, because I've heard both sides of that equation. So I've heard VCs tell me, yeah, when you put more money into the fund, you're more focused and more objective and you're rocking and rolling. Versus, you know, I've heard the opposite. I've heard you don't put money in. There's more of an objective outlook to it. I want to hone in on what your sort of thought process is. Because for me, I think about my own money as I might be more emotionally charged <laughs> and I may not be as objective. So love to understand how you think about that mindset. You know, when I think about it, I look at it from what does it take to really make this win? Because sure. if it's yeah. my money, I almost do the chess moves out. You need to do A to B to C to D to get to here. And this is what needs to happen. And when you think about it that way, if a couple of those links don't look like or are high risk, then you just assess it differently. And so I do believe it's different when you're playing with house money than when you're playing with your own money. Sure. I, no, that's fair. That's you know, the fair. other thing that's different is it's a little bit about like the chicken and the egg or the chicken and the, <laughs> whatever yeah. that one, because- yep. When it's your money, if something starts to go wrong, which it will start to go wrong, you have to figure out how you're going to bail it out. If you're a passive investor, it's a company's money, you say, eh, it didn't work out, that happens. Really yeah. different feelings about the deal, depending upon which side of the coin you're on there. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, that's really, really helpful to hear your perspective on that. I'm going to kind of change things up a little bit, kind of go back to your background. Tell me... Again, this can be both personal, professional, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, but love to kind of understand what was kind of one of your called biggest setbacks and what'd you learn from it? Yeah. So in a 30 plus career, you have a lot of good setbacks. <laughs> so let's see, I'm going to pick one from the corporate world and one from kind of the entrepreneurial world. So corporate world, my first 10 or 15 years, everything was up and to the right. The world just kept growing. The tech was going. And then that dot-com bust happened and yep. we called it a bobsled ride to hell. Everything. <laughs> it was, it was. This was, uh, this was 2001, 2002 time frame. Yep. And yep. everything yep. fell out. It yep. just really changed. And I probably laid off 500 people. We HP wow. Agilent, we had a big layoff. 
that changes your perspective on hiring. I think I look at risks probably differently. I look at macro trends differently, mm-hmm. just realizing that everything doesn't go up and to the right. I was talking to some young people looking at buying a house and they said, oh, I'm going to wait till the interest rate go back down to three or 4% again. And I said, you might want to look at a curve. They have not been this low for a really long time. You know, you might want to buy quick at five or six. So, so just recognizing that Everything doesn't always go up and to the right, I think was my big lesson there. And that downsizing is really tough. That was a really tough time for me. More recently, when we first bought this little company, which was very small, this American Medical, when we purchased it, there was a leader in place that we thought was going to lead. And we were going to be sort of passive in that exercise. Turns out he had some ethical problems and that wasn't going to be a fit. So we had to decide, shut it down or do something different. And so Who's the leader making sure on those decisions is just really critical. I think that was probably the second lesson. And I ended up stepping in. We had some really tough years of a really small company. Turned out terrific. And I'm glad we got where we did. But again, some tough years and some good learning. Very cool. And I appreciate you sharing those two experiences. I actually started my venture career during the recession. So it was the second recession, I would call it the 2008, 2009 timeframe. And so I remember three weeks into my new gig as a growth equity investor and all of a sudden Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and all these investment banks were tanking. And it was, I guess, probably fortunate for me because I you know, can only go up from there. <laughs> so good times, good times. Yeah. Another question for you in terms of kind of lessons learned, I guess, kind of looking into the forward direction. So you've been in healthcare for some time. Based on what you've learned about the healthcare ecosystem, what do you see as the kind of really exciting opportunities here over the next five to 10 years? What are you seeing as exciting, both as an investment or build trend? Ah, so much is changing in the healthcare world. Actually, I'm going to go to COVID and the changes that COVID brought on. I think it is going to change fundamentally how healthcare is provided, right? It has yep. is, is severed this, have to be in person, have to be done this way. I think we're going to see changes in, it will take a while, but more and more is going to be remote. More and more seniors are going to stay in the home versus going into senior living because we're going to be able to remotely monitor them. I think surgery will still need to be done in a surgery, but I think a lot of other healthcare we're going to see change, much like we do Zoom meetings in the business world. It will become normal to somehow send in samples, send in this and not be in person nearly as much. So I think it will change not only healthcare, how it's provided. Think about it. It'll have implications back to real estate and what real estate is needed or not needed. So that's the biggest one I think is going to change. Interesting. What about oxygen therapy ecosystem or just respiratory more broadly? Any interesting trends that you're seeing over the next five to 10 years? I know we've discussed this obviously in multiple sessions, but love to get your perspective here to our uh, listeners. Yep. So oxygen, which is core for Natera and oxygen therapy, core for care and Natera, we've done a deep dive into that. The technology is actually fairly old for how we take the air sorted into the oxygen and other gases, concentrate the oxygen and give it to the patients. I do see innovations happening in that. Over our next, let's call it five years, we did also look that there is no second alternative for oxygen in the marketplace. I don't see that need going away. I see, unfortunately, our population aging and people with COPD and other respiratory diseases continuing to need. There's no pill. 
that we can give people that will replace supplemental oxygen. So I see it as a real core need. I do think the respiratory market as a whole is only going to get bigger, unfortunately, because of our air quality and what is happening to our air. So this as a core expertise for Natera, I think is going to play well for the next 50 years. Okay. Okay. For sort of the entrepreneurs or operators out there that are listening to this, I know you talked a little bit about what attracted you to Natera Health or Natera more broadly. Could you give a little bit of perspective about what you see as the opportunity for them in terms of us potentially investing in them in the future? What sort of advice do you give them? So in my HP and Agilent days, I had teams in Japan and starts by recognizing that Japanese do such a good job at looking long-term. And again, Mm -hmm. what Natera is doing now, recognizing where spark plugs are going to go and their tremendous commitment to new innovation and healthcare in that domain in particular, the broad domain in particular, says it's an exciting area because they are willing to invest in a long-term play. This is not what's going to happen tomorrow, but it's a long-term play. And they have such a deep history of being able to do technology and innovation. I think it's an exciting place to be. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. We're, we think this is a very special place and have been here for two and a half years or so. And it's a very special place, right? There's a lot going on and a lot of intelligent people, but certainly the Japanese culture is a big part of what I think makes this place special. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, it's that commitment to a long term, not tomorrow. Yes. In your we get pretty quarterly earnings focused in the U.S. Yes, exactly. Have you had, just kind of riving off your comment about having interaction with Japanese players when you were at Agilent or HP, did you have a lot of experience with Japanese companies before consummating the transaction? Any early interactions or is this your first sort of at bat with a Japanese company? No. Well, so I had teams in Japan. Yeah, that worked for me. Yes. So HP and Agilent both had significant operations there. And so we were working with and selling with Japanese customers. During those 20 years, the Japanese culture went through a ride high up to learning that doesn't always go up and to the right as well. And so I, I did get to watch them regroup. I was schooled early on in the Japanese quality, which was so revolutionary to many U.S. markets as well. But no, I had a lot of experience with the Japanese, so I am very familiar with working with them. Very cool. What was that like? So working, you know, a company headquartered out of the U.S. with team in Japan, I sort of envision it as being sort of the inverse of our situation where the Japanese culture sets the tone and we sort of, we obviously lead with U.S. postulates, but generally speaking, the Japan culture is sort of ingrained in everything we do day to day. What was it like being at a U.S. company managing a team of colleagues in Japan? So it is almost the inverse. And it is interesting (laughs) because you can see how we come with our biases. I mean, it's a perfect example of how. And when I see decisions being made now within the Terra, I can say, this is what HP would have done with the team in Japan because we come at it with our biases that are inherent. And I think the world is getting smaller and I think all the leaders are getting much more schooled in how different cultures work. And so those barriers are being broken down. But it was American companies think American first and Japanese companies tend to think their culture is Japanese first and they're trying to learn how to be more American. Yeah, That is just the world. I think it is getting smaller. That's very interesting. In terms of the work you're doing at Agilent, were you more on the product side, on the business development side? Where, where 
Because you, you do have an engineering background, which is really cool. I, so, I, I um, do have an engineering background. Yeah. So I started out as an engineer and I cross, a, again, the career. I was an engineer, a project manager, an R&D manager, a production manager, right. a general manager of multiple divisions. And then at Agilent, I actually had a, what was called a business unit. So wow. we had about a billion dollars in revenue across four divisions. One was a division that assembled HP or Agilent equipment into large integrated test systems. So that's where we sold into, we tested, I don't know, 80 or 90% of the world's cell phones for 10 years. And then we had a service and support around the world organization and a couple of product divisions. So HP scopes, HP equipment. So there's various instrument divisions that were part of my team. So four distinct P&Ls is what I had under Agilent. That's incredible. And then I know you talked about your background, but I didn't hear your kind of key motivation. What made you walk away from the big sort of company life, right? You know, again, it sounds like you had a little bit of a rude awakening during the bubble. So there was a key learning there. But walk us through that transition from leaving big company. I mean, you were managing multiple billions of dollar P&L. That's incredible. So what motivated you to leave that to become candidly more entrepreneurial? So first it was a billion, not multiple billions. I ah, wish it billions, was multiple billions. billions. Just to be honest, not to over-exaggerate. Oh, fair enough. Uh, honestly, my husband and I have always been a team. And he awesome. had left HP after about 10 years and did a startup of his own that he had a nice liquidity event. And I wanted to be a mom before my girls were off. So there is always this balance when you have a family. And sure. so it was a good time. You know, life gives us times to take pause and reassess what we're doing. And that was one of those. And so it was a good time to exit. I had a wonderful career. I really think a big corporate career is a wonderful way for an engineer to start. And as I, yeah, I think it's a wonderful training ground, but it was just a good pivot point for me because he had sold a business. My girls were in high school. I got to make sure I spent some time with them and I knew I would have a phase two. Awesome. That's cool. I really appreciate you sharing that with the listeners here. I think we've covered a, a lot of good topics here today, but I definitely want to leave, hand the microphone to you and give you an opportunity to uh, share kind of your call to action to our listeners and give us a little bit of context of where they can follow you and your work. Ah, interesting. Okay. But after we do, uh, so I will answer your question, but then I want to flip the microphone and ask you a couple of <laughs> questions. I want to sure, have a little sure. fun. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, let's, so, do let's do it. So in terms of call to action, I would tell people, God, just there are so many opportunities. And I do encourage people to be entrepreneurial. I do think the healthcare, to those that are so interested, there is many opportunities. And my lesson is it doesn't need to be a billion dollar niche, doesn't need to be a hundred million dollar niche. There's lots of nice 10 and 20 and 30 million dollar niches that you can be successful in and want, you know, a base hit or a second base really builds to go forward. I am biased that I think healthcare is a lot of opportunity. Actually, for those who follow Scott Galloway, I like his stuff too. Scott would tell you healthcare is the way to be. Look there, there's opportunity. So I can quote a source much more credible than me. Healthcare, lots of opportunities, lots of ways to do that. I do not have a big following, but I'm happy for anybody to reach out to me. You can find me on a care email address or a AMSR email address that are, I'm sure we can both get in the show notes. Awesome. That's great. Okay, so flipping it back to you. Sure. Let's do it. I love it. I thought we'd do a couple of would you rathers, you know. Would ah. you rather <laughs> live in Colorado or California? Ooh, great question. Colorado, hands down. I'm not just saying that because you're from Colorado. I love the mountains. I have not spent much time in the mountains. I grew up in the Midwest, but 
always have a great time when I go skiing or hiking in the mountains. So Colorado. So good answer. But I would tell the listeners that Colorado is turning out to be a pretty nice tech mecca as well. A little bit more cost of living. I think it is attracting a younger generation that is a little more balanced in their work life. And the mountains are beautiful. Okay, second one, be a VC or an operator. Ooh, man, that's a great question. I have to say that there's always a time and place in life for someone to be a VC or an operator. I think right now, my call to action is to be a VC. I have been an operator before. It's hard. It is really, really hard. But I'm definitely, you know, I'm at a great place right now with a wonderful shop that is backing our investment activity. And so I definitely VC for the time being. And my last one, bringing it back to healthcare is, would you bet on Amazon or a traditional healthcare provider like maybe United Health to bring <laughs> forth the biggest change in healthcare? Oh man, that's a hard question. So my former managing partner when I was at Providence is Aaron Martin, full transparency, and he runs Amazon Healthcare. And he came from the Providence world. So he worked at Amazon for 10 years, went and learned the true healthcare operator business as the managing partner and chief digital officer for Providence. And now he's back at Amazon. So tells you a little bit about where things are. But I think that I'll whiff on this response a little bit. So I think traditional tech players are really going to hammer out the technology piece of what it's going to take to get healthcare going. But I think the the traditional operators are going to crack the healthcare nut. Healthcare, as you mentioned in this podcast, a lot of challenges, a lot of regulatory issues, a lot of reimbursement nuances, and the value chain is somewhat convoluted. So I think those traditional operators really are going to actually figure this out more near term than the tech players. And so I think in the short term, I think we're going to see some progressive action on the traditional operator side. And then I'm going to see, I think we're going to see more collaborations with those tech players. And then there will be a somewhat of a called division of labor or division of of expertise where both will thrive in the world. But to answer your question about which one I would prefer to be with, I think the traditional healthcare operators got, it's at the front end of where the challenges are. I'm a problem solver. I love getting in, really solving the kind of traditional regulatory issues and the traditional reimbursement issues. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. And that's what I love about Matera is we have that expertise. We're building that expertise in-house. I think the ideal world is one where both come together, put their heads together and solve some problems and build great business. Uh, Terrific. Those are fun. Thanks. (laughs) Kind of whiffed on that one, but what was the original question? The original question was, what would I rather be at one versus the other? Yeah. Would you bet on, I was making you bet, Amazon or a traditional healthcare provider? Yeah. Yeah. Truthfully, I think it's, you know, not truthfully. I, I really think that these traditional, kind of thinking back on it again, right? I think your traditional healthcare operators are going to understand the nuances and then the tech players are really going to get the tech. And I think if you believe, you know, again, we believe that healthcare is going to be consumer driven. That's what's going to create light years of technological and engagement. So light years of technological leapfrogging as well as driving true consumer engagement. So I think tech is a big part of that equation. When I think about what the smartphone did for health and wellness apps. A lot of those apps wouldn't be around today if it wasn't for the smartphone. So I think Amazon has a leg up on that. But then, you know, the Providences or the United Healths of the world, they're systemic, right? They understand the world. They're already plugged in. It's where consumers get their healthcare day to day. That's a tricky question for sure. 
That's why I asked it. Boom. I like it. I like it. Cool. Any more thoughtful or uh, difficult questions? <laughs> no, I'm good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me ask the hook on that. You know, I really, really enjoy the conversation, Jenny. This is incredible. We are wrapping up some production here on a couple more interviews and we'll be probably releasing this in hopefully the next couple of weeks. So I really, really appreciate your time. Lots of fun, Thomas. It was fun. Boom. Thank you for joining us on the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Nigera Ventures, your go-to source for healthcare and tech venture investing. For additional information, resources, and ways to connect with us, please visit NigeraVentures.com. Together, let's spark innovation for the future of tech and healthcare investing.